Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts, presenting the Immersion World Tour 2017 with Britt Floyd, a journey through five decades of Pink Floyd at the Cross Insurance Center in Bangor, Wednesday, April 12th, waterfrontconcerts.com, 1-800-745-3000. The time is 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Paul Anderson, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU where we explore issues uh, facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, and from the economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites and probe deeply into the complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education in partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine's people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening can create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Paul Anderson from Maine Sea Grant. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour for Coastal Conversations. This morning, our show is about marine aquaculture, specifically sustainable aquaculture. The University of Maine and several partner institutions are midway through a five-year study about marine aquaculture as it's developing here on the coast of Maine. This $20 million project is being funded by the National Science Foundation, and we call it CNET, or Sustainable Ecological Aquaculture Network. The project is looking at a wide range of issues related to Uh, aquaculture through many different scientific disciplines, including the biophysical sciences, social sciences, and engineering. Its goal is to help guide the growing aquaculture industry in a way that is compatible with the coastal ecology and with the communities that make up Maine's multi-use working waterfront. My guests here this morning are four of the graduate students that are on the CNET project. We have Libby Gorse, Amalia Harrington, Molly Miller and Ben Scuderi here in the studio. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning, morning. Paul. Thanks for being here. Maybe we'll go around the table and uh, just introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and um, you know what you're maybe where you went to your undergraduate school and and just quickly what your project is. Maybe Libby, you can start. Sure. Thanks, Paul. So as Paul mentioned, my name is Libby Gorse. I am a PhD student in the uh, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering here at the University of Maine. I am a native of Cleveland, Ohio, or close to, and I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry from Baldwin-Wallace University. Great. Thanks, Libby. Hi, my name is Amalia Harrington. I am also a PhD student on the CNET project. I am working in the School of Marine Sciences um, looking at climate change impacts on lobsters, Um, but I am originally from Michigan, and I did my undergraduate degree in San Diego, California, in marine science. 
Hi, I'm Ben Scuderi. I'm a master's student in the School of Economics at the University of Maine, also working on the CNET project, um, looking at some of the economic uh, issues surrounding sustainable aquaculture in Maine. I am originally from Savannah, Georgia, and I did my undergraduate degree in ecology at the University of Georgia. Hi, I'm Molly Miller. I'm a second-year PhD student in the Department of um, Ecology and Environmental Sciences, and I am, broadly speaking, looking at how governance and institutions is shaping the growth of aquaculture in Maine, um, with a special focus right now on intertidal clam aquaculture. And I am from Medway, Massachusetts, and I did my undergrad in biology at Vassar College. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, for the audience, we're going to talk a bit about the project for a little while, and later in the hour, we'll uh, we'll open up the phone lines and take your your calls and questions and see what kind of discussion you'd like to get into. Um, this is a pretty exciting project and involving all kinds of different disciplines. And as you can tell from the four students that we brought in here this morning, um, it crosses over a whole range of topics that relate to really our, our working waterfront here in Maine, and uh, and specifically around how aquaculture. Um, it has been emerging for many years and where it might go as, as it becomes um, a more important part of our food systems. So just briefly, I'll, I'll characterize the overall project and then let uh, each of our students talk a bit more about their own research. Um, it did start uh, two and a half years ago. We're about halfway through. These students arrived last year and uh, are in year two or beginning finishing year two of their work. Um, and, um, and so some of the research is still in its early preliminary phases. but. We organize it into four basic elements, and the first one is what we call kind of the environmental and social carrying capacity, where we're measuring a lot of different attributes in some of the estuaries along Maine's coast in the water column and on the benthic community, and we're using sensor technologies and uh, all kinds of other laboratory analysis to understand what is the ecosystem like, and uh, as we work through the future on the project, we'll be able to understand uh, what is that ecosystem providing for marine organisms that we might choose to grow. A second theme is asking the question of what's going on with climate change and the changing environment around us and what does that mean for the aquaculture industry, either uh, challenges that it may face with um, you know, warming temperatures or changing ocean chemistry or even severe storms, uh, but also opportunities that might emerge with uh, other kinds of uh, organisms. Uh, to cultivate. The third theme is simply called innovations in aquaculture, and that is what are we, uh, what are the opportunities that we haven't perhaps discovered yet around value chain, adding value to aquaculture products, uh, and looking at other kinds of um, support and what we'd call, uh, like for for example, uh, gear technologies and other sorts of engineering questions that can help us to. Uh, to innovate and understand how aquaculture can grow um, in a productive sort of way. And then our final theme uh, that crosses over those biophysical themes is really a, a collection of social science that we're doing. Uh, and Ben is here talking, he's part of the, that team that's working on some of the economic questions around um, aquaculture now and as aquaculture emerges. But there's a lot of other elements of the social science theme that, that are asking questions about, you know, what is the dialogue in aquaculture here in Maine and how has it been and where where is that getting its information from and how is that dialogue going to be shaped in the future? So that's a, a loose characterization of, of a really complex but exciting project. And um, I'm, I'm so pleased to be involved with it uh, in my role in Sea Grant. Uh, I actually 
Um, one of my other jobs is to help coordinate the research element of the CNET project. And um, we have 24 graduate students, and we'll talk a bit of, in a little while with our students here about uh, what that's like for them. But maybe let's go back around, and Libby, if you want to start, tell us a little bit more specifically about what your particular research project is. Sure. So my research project, loosely speaking, is uh, assessing how aquaculture affects the sediment ecology. So the way that we're looking at you know, assessing different sites for carrying capacity has to include uh, looking at how these different types of aquaculture affect what's already living in these different areas that we're, we're going to be growing these marine species. So when you think about agriculture, we have a pretty good understanding of how manure is being digested on the ground, but we don't really know how the sediment underneath these aquaculture farms can handle the feces that result from um, the different species that we grow here, like oysters and mussels and fish. So what I'm looking at is uh, I'm specifically looking at different nutrients, things that feed the, the phytoplankton and the, the base of the food web here in our water column. And um, what I do is I collect sediment cores from around these farms, and I compare them to sediment cores that are similar but not around the, the farms, and I look at how different they might be. And we're really hoping that the work that I'm doing is able to empower stakeholders on all sides of aquaculture. Great. Thank you. So that's kind of looking at uh, some of the interactions between marine organisms and the environment. Um, Amalia, your your work is more on a laboratory basis, but it, similarly asking some questions about the interaction between the organisms right now and a lobster, but maybe other species too. Want to tell us what that's all about? Sure. So this is actually my first year on the CNET program. I joined a little bit late, um, but my lab has been working on looking at how temperature and ocean acidification influence lobsters. And my project specifically, as Paul said, is, is mostly lab-based at this point. And I've been working with a lot of the, the helpful folks in the Aquaculture Research Center on campus to build an ocean acidification system. So what we're able to do in a laboratory setting is mimic and kind of predict what might happen to um, ocean chemistry conditions by altering the pH level of our system. So we can change the water chemistry and then look at how that influences the physiology of lobsters. So we recently built the system and had a, a short-term um, acidification experiment and we recently took some samples from sub-adult lobsters, so those are larger juveniles, but still not in the harvestable size. Um, and they're out for, these samples are going to be sent out soon for sequencing, so we can look at the um, genetic level of the impact of OA on lobsters. But what I think is really interesting um, and kind of ties in with the broader theme of CNET is that the system can be used by anyone now. So we have someone who's going to be moving in and putting muscles in the system soon. So there's a lot of potential to use 
more um, directly cultured species um, since we worked out the bugs with um, lobsters as a model. So That's great. So we, we know that the, uh, the ocean around the world and to different degrees in different parts of the world, the chemistry is changing, and, and we, we can see that in a number of different ways, including its pH. So the acidification... Um, and we've seen this in different parts of uh, waters off the United States, um, can cause uh, organisms that calcify and create shells, like our oysters and our mussels, our clams, particularly in their juvenile stages. We, we know that this acidification can cause um, mortality, and those organisms are struggling. So it's an issue that's being grappled with by you know both wild fisheries and and. Uh, aquaculture fisheries and, and here in, in Maine's uh, oyster industry for example some of our more progressive um, hatcheries are learning how to manipulate their water pH to make sure that they can get their organisms through that that critical stage so that's really cool Amalia thanks for for sharing that um, and Ben kind of a completely different part of the study for you with economics absolutely yeah um, my my research is is like you said, pretty different from a lot of the other researchers uh, on the project. Um, what I've done is uh, I've looked at the market for some aquaculture products, and specifically I've, I've done a project where I was looking at uh, imported aquaculture prices versus prices for similar domestic products, seeing whether there are specific interactions between those prices um, to try to get a better understanding of, you know, products produced in Maine, how are they going to compete with uh, these similar imported products, especially if they're facing different prices, things like that. I've also done a, a different project where we were looking at the oyster industry in Maine, and we were specifically looking for production efficiency and the determinants of what makes an oyster farm efficient um, versus a less efficient farm. And we're basically trying to gather some information which can hopefully be helpful towards um, you know, increasing outreach and for extension personnel uh, trying to help farmers to make their operations more efficient. Um, and we're also looking at some factors like whether communication among growers is something that can increase uh, production efficiency and also some other aspects, uh, including the risks that oyster, facers, uh, oyster farmers uh, face in their daily production. So I'm aware, Ben, that uh, through my cigarette network that that the oyster thing is big all around the co- country. It's a thing. It's a big thing. And, and there's, you know, we're, we're creating the oyster trail here in Maine, but that's not the first one. There's other places in the country where they've really created quite a buzz around oyster, oyster bars and wet, what do you call them? I'm uh, missing the words, but, but um, you know, it's, it's kind of become a destination sort of culinary treat. And, um, but there's a lot of growing on going on out there, too. There's a, there's a real interest in getting into this. So what, is that, uh, what challenge does that create for Maine, or does Maine have a corner on the market because of our environmental conditions or anything like that? Do you know? Well, I think Maine does. Um, there, there are a lot of oyster farms already, as, as you pointed out, but it's also an industry that we're seeing growing. So we've actually, we did a, a survey to try to gather information about the industry, and we're seeing that there's, there's a lot of new farms starting up. Uh, a lot of people are getting into oyster farming who were formerly in other occupations such as commercial fishing, things like that. 
Um, so I think oyster farming is a really attractive industry, and I feel that Maine is in a good position to increase their oyster production because they do have a great environment for it. They're able to produce uh, oysters that people seem to be willing to pay a little bit more for um, a Maine-produced oyster. So I think they are in really good position to take advantage of, of like you said, this trend um, that we see in increased oyster consumption among Americans. Great. Thanks, Ben. And Molly, you're working on an interesting project in the intertide around soft-shell clams, but kind of in a, almost a social science and anthropological sort of approach, right? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Paul. Um, so I'm looking at, right now, community-based clam farming um, in the intertidal and clam farming is pretty new to Maine compared to the other um, aquaculture um, species. And it's also very low cost in terms of gear compared to other species and very easily accessible. Um, you don't need a boat to go into the intertidal and have a farm. Um, however, there are some interesting factors when you talk about the governance of this system, looking at property rights, for example, um, riparian landowners own a portion of the intertidal, which um, is really unique to Maine and Massachusetts, and it it can make um, the growth of this industry um, a little bit challenging. So that's one of the things I'm looking at. And I'm also looking at in these coastal communities factors like socioeconomic attributes, um, the history of harvest, clam harvest in these in these towns, as well as the importance of the resource to these communities, how dependent they are. Um, and really seeing if community-based clam aquaculture is a way to make um, coastal communities more resilient to various social and environmental changes. Um, one particular one that I've been thinking about is as waters are warming, there's more green crabs. Green crabs are a primary predator of soft-shell clams. Um, with these clam farms, you have netting that's helping to protect um, the clams as they're growing to size, to harvestable size. Um, Brian Beal's done a lot of this work. He's also on um, the CNET grant. And so one of the projects I've been working on, um, I've been working with members of the environmental department at Pleasant Point, um, the Passamaquoddy tribe, to put in a soft-shell clam farm, which we will be putting in um, later this spring and seeing how that can help um, boost clam populations in that area and help out um, clam harvesters supplement um, what they're harvesting from the wild. Great. Thanks, Molly. So you're tuned to Coastal Conversations here at WERU. Thanks for tuning in this morning. We have a group of um, students from the University of Maine who are part of a large uh, research project funded by the National Science Foundation exploring a whole lot of different dimensions to what we call sustainable ecological aquaculture. Uh, of course, aquaculture has been here in Maine for 30 or 40 years, and it's always been um, pretty sustainable and pretty um, ecological um, in its footprint. And so, you know, building on, on its its legacy and making sure that we're learning lessons as we go is certainly uh, one of the industry's goals. But this is an opportunity to really analyze some of those um, particular elements. In addition to what we're hearing from our four students this morning, the project is touching on uh, understanding food webs in general in our coastal ecosystem. We're doing some fairly sophisticated modeling 
of oceanographic conditions, both physical, chemical, and biological, and uh, understanding from our real-time observations how we can build predictive models to help uh, understand these uh, these settings without necessarily having to measure all of these parameters constantly. That's the concept of modeling. We also um, have other members of the student cohort that are working on seaweed aquaculture, which is a new and emerging um, sector here in Maine over the last five years. So looking at some of the technologies and opportunities for processing of seaweeds of different species and um, perhaps getting into some product development questions. Um, Molly just mentioned the green crab which is uh, not an aquacultured species, but it's it's a species out there that's a problem associated probably with our, our changing environment. And uh, so we're exploring a little bit about the green crab as a possible protein source for, um, for feeding other types of organisms. And we even have a student working in the chemistry department looking at the uh, potentially more environmentally benign anti-biofouling kinds of compounds that we could be using both in aquaculture and, and other kinds of fisheries and even boating. Anybody out there who works or lives or recreates on Maine's coast knows what the biofouling is when barnacles and tunicates and other sorts of things stick to your docks and, and can become quite a nuisance. So that would be amazing if we were able to develop something along those lines. So um, uh, back to the students that we have here with us. Um, what brought you to the CNET project? Anybody want to tell us? Was it? I'm Libby? happy to jump in. Sure. So, I moved to Maine straight from an organic permaculture that I was working on out in eastern Washington, and I knew that I wanted to get into environmental engineering and utilize my chemistry background. But I was also very passionate about food, clearly. And this project, when I heard about it, was the perfect blend of my two passions. So I'm able to put those together. And on top of that, I'm working with students across disciplines and faculty and stakeholders that are actually out there that have their boots on the ground that are, you know, both farming and also um, those in policy work. And I get to, to talk with both of them. So CNET has been both humbling and very educational, and I, I find the, this sort of work very rewarding. Okay. Amalia? Uh, sort of to just play off of Libby's mention of stakeholders, it's, for our lab, it's not just the, the boots on the ground in terms of the farming, but we've also been able to, to reach out to some of the folks who are actually monitoring the ocean acidification um, process in their um, culturing facilities, too. And um, especially at Mook Sea Farm, they, they helped us actually build our system and let us walk in and see what their setup is like. So not only just from a farming perspective, but also from a, a research perspective, it's been really great to be part of this larger community and be able to reach out and, and talk to not only, you know, stakeholders and other research members, but really get some insight as to how to build and move forward in, in research perspectives too. Great. Yep. Um, so for me, what really interested me in the CNAP project specifically and in, in coming to Maine to pursue it was the fact that it is a really interdisciplinary project. So my background, as I stated, is, is in ecology. Um, right now I am doing some economics work 
Um, and that's the great thing about CNET is it allows us to, to look at the problem of sustainable ecological aquaculture from a bunch of different lenses um, and to really uh, pursue this problem from different angles and to work with colleagues who have all different backgrounds to kind of understand the problem more fully. So I became really interested in fisheries uh, during my undergraduate degree and then um, through that kind of became interested in aquaculture uh, once I understood that it, it was something that was going to be necessary in order for for us to continue to consume seafood at the level that we do. Um, it seemed like aquaculture is a, a was a clear step. So it was something I became really interested in. I found out about the CNET project, and it just seemed like a perfect opportunity for somebody like me. Great. Um, so for me, um, I grew up coming to Maine um, as a, one of those pesky summer people. Um, <laughs> every summer, um, my parents have a camp in Georgetown, and I absolutely love Maine and worked at um, the MDI Biolab in Bar Harbor as an undergrad and then again after college for a year um, doing eelgrass conservation and restoration and working um, in the community there. And I, um, I absolutely loved working in Maine's communities. And um, when I was finishing up my master's, I was looking for opportunities of how to come back to Maine. Um, and um, a researcher on the grant reached out to me and we had very similar research interests. Um, and I loved the idea of working on an aquaculture grant. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm very, um, very passionate about marine resource management. And I thought that was a really nice blend of all of my interests to come back to Maine and do that. Great. So you're all part of a cohort of, I think we have 24 graduate students at this point, some of them master's degrees, and, and a few of them are moving on, having done their two years and, a, and another cohort coming in. Um, but the PhD students will be here for another couple of years and, and working with a whole group of students. Um, this project is brought to us, of course, it's National Science Foundation funding. It was very competitive for it to, um, for the University of Maine and our partners to be uh, granted this award. Um, but it comes to us through what's called EPSCOR, the Experimental, Experimental Program to Stimulate Competitive Research. And Maine is one of oh, 28 or 30 EPSCOR states, and it's a program designed to help some of the smaller states or the, the, the states with smaller research capacity to compete better in the world of, um, of federal, mostly federal funding for these kinds of comprehensive research programs across the whole spectrum. And so the EPSCOR program at the University of Maine has brought a lot of new capacity, new laboratory um, capabilities, and new uh, intellectual capacity over the last 20 or more years. And this is the latest of, of the EPSCOR large projects going on called CNET. And so we want to thank certainly our EPSCOR office at UMaine for helping to um, both bring the project to us, but also to um, to help us manage it on a, a daily basis. There's 24 graduate students anywhere from up to 80 undergrads at any one time during the year. Um, we were able to hire four new faculty, three of them at UMaine and one at the University of New England. And um, we support a couple of postdoctoral students at any one time. And then there's just a whole range of, um, I don't know, probably 20 research faculty members across our, our institutions from UMaine to uh, uh, University of New England uh, uh, and several other institutions. Um, 
And so it's it's a huge project, and, and so the capacity here to uh, ask these kinds of questions and, and have a sustained research effort is um, is really important. And uh, we're looking forward to its continuing findings over the coming couple of years. So you're tuned to Coastal Conversations here at WERU, and we'd like to welcome our listeners um, to call and um, ask a question of, of my guests. We have four of our graduate students with us in the studio if you'd like to call and make a comment or ask a question, you're welcome to call. The phones are being tended, and the number is uh, 866-625-9378. 866-625-9378. Give a call if you'd like. We're here until 10 o'clock talking about aquaculture. Um, so what is that like to be in a cohort of um, 24 you know, young graduate students, starting your careers molly um so i've been um i've been really fascinated with a lot of the work that's coming out of this project and especially the grad students and for me it's been really neat to see how the social the economic and the biophysical um, research questions that are being asked can all fit into this big picture of um aquaculture in Maine and seeing how we all fit together has been a really neat process and um, getting to learn in a very informal setting with the other grad students about projects and not feeling like I'm asking a dumb question or um, it's just a really welcoming environment to to ask those questions about um, other student researchers and get to learn about their research and aquaculture in general in ways that I wouldn't through my own. Anyone else want a whack at that? Yeah, I, I agree with what Molly said. And it also, to me, has been really interesting to learn about um, people's projects as they have started. So a lot of times when, when you learn about people's research, it, it's once you know they've already collected all their findings and, and it's being presented. But to be able to talk to people about you know the issues that they face starting out um, with things like data collection and designing their systems has been really interesting. Um, and to be able to to have so many colleagues uh, working on the same project is uh, is is a really unique experience for me. Yeah, great. We have uh, we have a caller on the line, Wally from Ellsworth. Good morning, Wally. Welcome to Coastal Conversations. Hi. Yeah, uh, I was uh, interested in the uh, sediment uh, core sampling thing, and uh, I was curious about how. Like I assume you're mapping where the cores are taken around the yep. aquaculture facility. I was wondering how you did that. Was it? I mean, you're you're probably there in a boat, right? And you're throwing something down off the side of the boat and getting a core. And how do you figure out the? But uh, you know, how do you map that core with the currents and the depth and all that type of thing? Thanks like for what your thanks, Wally. Yep. Yeah. All right. Thanks. So we do collect these cores off a boat. We have a very sophisticated core that we actually brought to Maine for this project. And it, um, it collects a pretty decently sized core, almost five and a half, six inches in a diameter. And what I'm able to do with these cores is I bring them back to the lab and I incubate them and I basically mimic the environment in the laboratory and I do map where they're from. Each one gets labeled when they come on the boat. And um, 
we we cap these cores with the water from this area, so we bring water on board as well to replicate the environment as best as possible. And we keep them in an environmental chamber at the temperature of the water. And we we do a little bit of stirring of the water to make sure that, you know, we don't deplete the cores of oxygen as we run these experiments over time. And I collect water off the top over the course of 10 hours and uh, do some chemical analyses of, of what's in there. And we actually have another student who's not with us today who will be putting this information in a bigger model. And so I hope in a couple years from now we're able to tell you a little bit more about how the currents affect what I'm studying. But for right now, I'm trying to get a, a good idea of what the, um, the flow of nutrients is like into and out of the sediment. And then we'll go from there. I hope I answered your question all right. Thanks, Wally. So that's a, you must have a GPS of some sort. And you're, you're in the Damascotta River right now working yep. around those farms, right? Correct. Yeah. Yep. And I do collect the GPS coordinates. We, we have a, a tool on the boat that we can hit when we, we toss the core overboard. And I guess it will get a little more tricky this summer when I'm scuba diving for cores. <laughs> yeah, but you must be able to have a GPS locator special absolutely with our, with the phones that we have these days it's very easy to collect and store our gps coordinates yeah yep. yeah yeah because you can imagine that with uh with mains tides and the flow of currents in and out of these estuaries um whatever is coming off a farm that's floating in i don't know 20 or 30 feet of water it's not just gonna head right to the bottom so we must have to profile in and around those farms to try to link that with sediment transport, right, and, and see if there are vulnerable bottom types. And, and Absolutely. Uh, yep. yep. That's a part of, that's definitely a big component to this work is uh, studying different sediment types. And then from there, we're also going to look at where the sediment is going because the, that's going to play a pretty big role in, in how these different fecal deposits get digested depending on what kind of sediment they land on that's going to determine whether they stay there for a while or they get swept out to sea yeah good thanks for your question wally and again the phone lines are open if you'd like to join our conversation this morning about aquaculture here on the coast of maine phone number at the weru studio is 866-625-9378 Seven eight. Um, let me see. I have some uh, questions here. So, what's what's your understanding of uh, how this whole aquaculture conversation plays with the planet and the uh, the food systems that we have in play? I mean, I know you all have heard. We've had guest speakers come in and talk about. You know how how is aquaculture emerging around the the world, and you know why is it? seem to be so popular here in Maine. Anybody want to take a piece of that? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons that it's so popular in Maine. Uh, one obvious one is that we have a lot of coastline here in Maine. Um, another is that historically uh, people in Maine and coastal communities have relied on um, collecting you know, seafood and seafood proteins uh, as both a food source and, you know, 
a source of money for these coastal communities. So I think that's a reason. And also the fact that um, people living in these coastal communities, you know, want to work on the water. And this gives them, aquaculture gives them an opportunity to continue to work on the water, even um, if potentially the fisheries that they have relied on are not at the same level that they used to be. Mm. That's an interesting point. We can come back to that, too. We do have a caller from Frankfort, Maine. Jenny is on the phone. Good morning, Jenny. Welcome. Good morning. I work with kids in Belfast. I'm wondering if you guys are doing anything in Belfast. Um, absolutely. In fact, I attended a fascinating event the other night at the uh, Colonial Theater where your middle school is um, is in partnership with with some of our partners from the Hurricane Island Institute out in the, uh, out in the bay and the Island Institute, where they've got the the children growing um, seaweed and and learning about how to grow seaweed. It's really quite a fascinating um, uh, program and a project that's been picked up in several parts of the state because these uh, the kelp seaweed grows quite quickly. Yeah. And uh, and so I forget the, the the teacher's name. He was wonderful, and he had his whole group of students there too, um, from I think the middle school in Belfast or no- Northport. He was from Northport. I'm from sorry. Northport, they're doing wonderful things down there. Yeah. Um, so I'm. I realize that's different from Belfast, but when <laughs> when you come from Orono, it feels like Belfast. It's very close. <laughs> it's very close. Their school sits. Their their school sits right on the water. They have a beautiful. Yeah. Spot. And but what they're doing is they're taking day trips out to Hurricane Island where um where the group out there has a lease site and they're um they have the infrastructure to work with both seaweeds and a couple of species of shellfish too. So that's an opportunity for you would be to partner with um some of the institutions like us that are that have things going on in the water. How far um, off the coast is Hurricane Island? Who do you know that? You do, Molly. Um it's roughly 15 miles. It's it, off of North Haven or Vinyl Haven? It's, off of, it's part of Vinyl Haven. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. So you might look at our website. If you, if you look at CNET um, on the Internet, I probably should have brought that URL and I did not. Um, we do have a whole program with, with workforce development on the CNET project, and a woman named Laurie Bragg. Um, is working with the 4-H to create uh, what, what are called um, what are they called kits the aquaculture toolkits yeah. yeah they're aquaculture sure. to- yes I'm familiar with how 4-H does that that's yeah. great yeah so that's going on and we also have a, a brand new display at the Discovery Museum in Bangor Maine um, that is uh, demonstrating different I saw types of aquaculture it, and it is wonderful and it's a perfect placement for it too. You guys did a good job. It looks, for anybody who goes to the Discovery Museum, it's just so realistic looking. And I was wondering, as I looked at it, where all your great materials came from, because they're so simple, and yet they're so so lifelike and perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And uh, so if you'd like to explore, um, you know, specific um, opportunities to get involved with you and your students, uh Feel free to um, find me, Paul Anderson, up at UMaine, or um, I can refer you to Lori Bragg, who can help connect you as well. Thank you so much. You guys are great. Thanks for the show. Thanks for the call, Jenny. Bye. If you'd like to join the uh, the discussion, you can. Phones are open, I think, uh, 866-625-9378. Um, before... 
that call we were talking about um really the opportunity that that maine has for aquaculture and i like ben you were finishing up with that point about um some of our traditional fisher fishermen um are gaining some interest in this and uh, does anybody anybody know enough about the aquaculture and shared waters and the training program that's going on to say anything about that I can say a little bit, um, but one of the other PhD students, Caitlin Cleaver, is um, really working on this. Um, But Aquaculture Shared Waters is um, a program, um, originally it was designed for fishermen who are interested in diversifying into aquaculture, but it's it's really open for everyone. Um, And right now the course is actually going on. It's a 12-week course, once a week. Um, This this particular one is running at the community center in Ellsworth. The, I believe it's the Moore Community Center. Um, and they meet for two hours once a week. Um, and they go over um, business plans. They go over shellfish husbandry, um, really everything you'd know, you need to know to go out on your own and start your own farm and get a lease. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a really great training program for people interested in getting into aquaculture. Yeah, to, to um, Ben's point, um, I mean, I've worked my entire career with the commercial fishing industry, and I know there are an incredibly talented group of people. Ingenuity is happens every day for them, and um, and and you know they're inventive and creative, and and they've had to be nimble around what they do with what they do because the species come, the species go, the conditions change, and they've had to keep up with that. So it's been really interesting to to. Uh, work with some of them that do take the training and realize that, hey, this is another thing I can do. Perhaps it's off-season from uh, my regular work. I can still use my boat. I can wear boots to work and uh, be independent. And uh, so we're trying to explore through this program and others how how to enable that kind of owner-operator scale of aquaculture. Um, If it's done right and we can figure out the right distribution post-harvest activities maybe it is an opportunity for for that triple bottom line we were talking about the triple bottom line earlier that aquaculture kind of fits into with uh, the economy the ecology and the community because you need good clean safe um, environment for good quality product but you also need the uh, prosperity for the individual and his or her community we have another caller from Bangor. Parker's on the phone. Good morning, Parker. Hi, thanks for the show. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Uh, so, question about shellfish aquaculture, a really exciting industry, um, with a couple maybe emerging threats between invasive species, and that's a climate issue, and also ocean acidification. What's kind of the, the vision for the state or management of these big-scale problems? Who wants to try that? That's a good question. Thanks, Parker. OA, you want to say anything about OA, Amalia? Sure. So ocean acidification is clearly a big issue when you're talking about bivalve aquaculture. Um, With decreasing pH, so you're having more acidification, there's definitely a problem with these organisms making their shells. So it, it negatively impacts their ability to calcify. So a lot of hatcheries are starting to monitor what their ocean chemistry is in a laboratory setting when they're raising their larvae, but 
once they start to outplant, then you have the problem of the natural acidification. And, you know, at this point, I don't think we have the technology to, you know, really change the chemistry in the bay. But I think what we're starting to do, at least from from what I know from the industry perspective, is start to address these OA problems in the laboratory setting while they're while they're the most vulnerable, so the the earliest life stages. Um, so that that's all that I think at this point we can do is really start to tackle the problem in the beginning. There is one uh, project going on, Parker. That's uh, with. One of our strong partners in the in the program is the Bigelow Laboratories, which is down there in, in Booth Bay region. And uh, one of their investigators um, is is working on an idea that's been tried elsewhere in the world to see if growing macrophytes, and that's seaweed in particular, kelp, in a, in a forest, if that can um, ameliorate or lessen the the pH uh, shift and create kind of a halo effect around. Uh, a, you know, an intensified kelp forest that actually is is you know it's a it's a carbon sink and can it help to minimize the um, the potential flux in pH and thereby lowering or, or uh, you know lessening the problem of ocean acidification. So that's a trial study that's going on, being funded by the CNET project and Dr. Nicole uh, Price from Bigelow is part of that, working with um, uh, Susie Arnold at the Island Institute. Do you have something? Uh, yeah, I was just going to comment on that. That also adds to the resiliency in, in the aquaculture network as well because you can harvest both the mussels and the algae that's coming off of those interactive sites. So you, you open up your your ability to have a, a greater profitability as well too. So, I was also thinking um, about how, as Amalia was saying, these – um, these baby shellfish, for instance, in the wild are having trouble making making shells because the ocean's becoming more acidic. And the hatcheries that are used for aquaculture, for oysters, for clams, um, are a way to, to keep these shellfish growing when they may not be able to continue in the wild. And it's a, it's a way to keep those shellfish as a part of Maine's coastline. That's an important point, too, because – and that is being used around the world. Really, it's another – function of aquaculture is to help with uh, population restoration and, and a whole range of species in different places in the world because these organisms do provide what we call ecosystem services. And I know in the Chesapeake Bay and areas to the south of us where they have um, some fairly chronic pollution problems, there are, there are efforts to reestablish wild oyster reefs and, and other kinds of um, uh, shellfish through you know, through aquaculture, not necessarily to create food, but to actually uh, benefit the environment. Um, the other part of Parker's question was about invasives, and I know we've got some work in the project going on with the green crabs. I don't know if either of you know enough about um, – is it – who's working on that? It's uh, – uh, Ian Bricknell, his lab is doing a little bit of work looking at green crabs. Um, one of the ideas, since the green crab population is kind of exploded, um, one of the remediation of ideas is to use them as a, a bait source for the lobster fishery. But one of the things that Ian's lab is looking into is um, the potential for green crabs to spread parasites to lobsters. So they're trying to tease apart the ability of of the transmission of those parasites. But like you mentioned, I think in the beginning of the show, another th- idea is to 
kind of make a market for human consumption too. I know a lot of people are are trying to get people to eat crabs because, you know, the green crabs aren't really going anywhere, especially as the Gulf continues to warm and and it's really a, a nice sweet spot for them. So Yeah. They're a bit of a scourge out there. If, if listeners have seen them in, in their nests, they're kind of like an image out of a Stephen King <laughs> movie or something. Um, uh, yeah, the, there are several folks that are exploring that. And I know the Sea Grant program that I helped to administer uh, provided a small grant to bring over an Italian chef working with an entrepreneur here and a scientist here who uh, – where over in, in Europe, they do eat these uh, animals, but they have to be at the right stage, more or less like our soft-shell crab fishery in the mid-Atlantic. So there would be a whole lot of um, you know, science and trials we'd have to do to understand how these crabs are growing here and their rate of growth and how can you predict when they're going to be um, soft and, and, and interesting to eat. I'm not sure <laughs> I'm all that interested in eating them. So thank you, Parker, for that call. Uh, we have a little bit more time here. We're here until 11 o'clock. You're tuned to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. Thanks for having your radio on out there. And, and by the way, thank you for listening and supporting this community radio station. It's a great thing that we have, a precious uh, asset to our coast on, here on the coast of Maine. Or perhaps you're listening all around the world because we do stream on the World Wide Web. If you'd like to join us for this discussion, you can. The phone line is open. It's 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. This is Paul Anderson. I'm here hosting the program this morning. Natalie's away, and so uh, I have the opportunity to do this. And we have four of our students um, from the Sustainable Ecological Aquaculture Network Research Program that's being led by the University of Maine in partnership with the University of New England and others. Libby Gore, Somalia Harrington, Molly Miller, and Ben Scuderi are my guests, and we're talking about different types of um, science to understand aquaculture's potential and its limitations and so forth. Um, It hasn't always been a smooth path, aquaculture here in Maine. There's been hiccups here and there, and there's been probably some mistakes and and things that we've... um, learned from and whether that's the you know various types of fed aquaculture or different other things obviously it has to fit into a, a traditional working waterfront um i wonder if any of you've had any experiences yet getting out with the stakeholder community and hearing um some of the the concerns that people have and and I know we, we had kind of an uh, an exercise a couple of years ago about thinking about some of the myth that's out there with aquaculture and some of the things that were were perhaps problems years ago that have that we've overcome. Um, have you worked on any of those kinds of questions, any of you? Um, so last year, um, some of us were interviewing some of the stakeholders involved in aquaculture in Maine. And so we, were, we weren't directly asking um, just regular um, community, um, community stakeholders what their perspectives were, but we were asking um, aquaculture farmers, um, NGOs, government officials involved in aquaculture, um, that sort of thing, what people's perceptions of aquaculture had been thus far. Um, and one of the interesting things I thought was um, 
a farmer, for instance, said they made a point to get to know their neighbors and um, bring them a bag of oysters when they were when they were starting up their operation. And um, because really it was the fear of the unknown of how the coast might change that um, kind of freaked some people out. And um, especially because Maine has one of the highest percentages of second homes in the country. There are a lot of um, people from away who have houses there and they don't know how that might impact their view or something like that. And so um, farmers have been making a real point to get to know their neighbors and and show them what a what a great thing it can be in a community, which I thought was really great. Hmm. Seems wise. I also have some colleagues in, in economics who have been looking at consumer perceptions of, of aquaculture. And it, it's been interesting. One of their findings has been that actually the people of Maine uh, seem to be a lot more open to aquaculture products. And they kind of view these products as a local food source, uh, part of kind of this local food movement, whereas um, when they've interviewed and talked to people from further away, such as they did a focus group in Boston, um, people were kind of less, they were maybe more suspicious of these products. So I think Maine has done a pretty good job of educating uh, the public about what aquaculture is, um, kind of about these products in general. Very good. Thank you. Um, So... What's next for you guys? You, uh, what goes on with your studies for the next couple of years? And and um, uh, like, are you going to uh, starting with Libby? You're working primarily in the Damascotta River right now with the oysters. Um, will we be trying those out in other kinds of settings? It's looking like I will probably be primarily studying the Damascotta in my project, but. I have been tirelessly pushing other people to bring on more students because I now have the methods pretty much sorted out. One thing that's um, interesting and, and has been difficult about my project is that we we did not have the infrastructure at the beginning of this project to do what I'm doing, but now we do. As I mentioned earlier, we have the sediment core and this summer I'm learning to scuba dive to collect these cores by hand. And I've gone through many different <laughs> experiments to get the methods perfect for the, the nutrient analysis that I'm doing. So we're off and we're ready to roll, but it does you can't really speed time up too much. So for me to get a good idea of what's happening in, in the, the Namaraskata, it's it's just going to take time. I have to sample in the spring, summer, and fall and get a good idea of what's happening here. And we have so many different sediment types in just one estuary alone. Each estuary could use its own graduate student. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm afraid we're finding that out with this whole project. And it's it's great to have built that capacity and that methodology right there. And I think you're right. If we can continue that sort of exploration and use your your findings and other bottom types, other types of estuaries, perhaps uh, other types of aquaculture. Um, I think that's the intention of the EPSCOR project is to kind of build that capacity and whether that's learning a new tool or buying a new um, new widget and uh, putting it to work um, for beyond the life of the grant. Something we didn't mention uh, about the, um, the CNET project is that it has a bioregional 
um, element to it where we've selected three different parts of Maine's coast that are, you know, most of us from here can understand that we have the southern Maine, you know, crescent beaches sort of thing. And then we have the middle, mid-coast sort of gnarly coast and then the down-east bluffs. And so those three bioregions have been broken into um, – six study areas and uh and we're deploying different parts of the research program over the life of the grant in those six study areas so last year we put some fairly sophisticated buoy networks in Saco bay way down uh, south of portland and in the Dermascotta river where libby does most of her work this coming year later this april we'll be um, deploying those sensor networks in a uh, very eastern portion of Casco Bay in and around the New Meadows River uh, near Bath in that part of Casco Bay, as well as right here in this neighborhood in the Bagaduce River, which is part of the Penobscot watershed. And then our final phase will be two portions of eastern Maine up in Washington County. And in 2018, we'll deploy that network uh, in the Machias River estuary area and a portion of Cobscook Bay. So those of you who know the coast of Maine know what I just listed were, were uh, you know, six very different biogeographic sections of Maine's coast where we can uh, do uh, some of the science that we're talking about this morning in kind of a distributed way and perhaps do some comparative analyses between each of those um, those sections. It's been pretty exciting. For those of you who are internet savvy, um, you can access a lot of this data and this information uh, through our internet website, and uh, that is simply umaine.edu slash cnet, S-E-A-N-E-T, it's umaine.edu slash cnet. And if you go out there, there are links to, um, for example, the buoy network that I just mentioned. And uh, once that's in the water, and it will be later in April, back in the water, we take it out in the wintertime. Um, but these these um, buoys are measuring dozens of different parameters in the water column, from dissolved oxygen to chlorophyll, and obviously some physical features like temperature and wave height and so forth. And those data are being telemetered through the cell phone network real-time right to the Internet. And so you can go every hour, find a new set of observations about what's going on in these uh, areas that we're studying. Pretty neat technology, really. And uh, it's that that's a capacity that Maine has never had to be able to look at that fine scale in the, the near shore. We're about wrapping up here, and I want to thank um, the students for coming in and being with us this morning. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we have Libby Gorse, Amalia Harrington, Molly Miller, and Ben Scuderi have been with me in the studio. Uh, I want to thank the University of Maine Sea Grant staff for helping to compile the show. And thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. You can join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music is called The Following Sea, composed and performed by me. Um, I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Paul Anderson from Maine Sea Grant, today's host of Coastal Conversations. I wish you a good morning.
Support for WERU comes from our listeners.